Welcome to This Week at Bible School, Episode 2. My name is Ashton Philipschek, and I'm at the Kanakuk Institute in Branson, Missouri. And this week is an awesome week at the Institute because it's Bible Overview Week, which means we get to share the story of the Bible in 30 minutes. Um, and we get to proclaim the good news and share why the story matters and how it's changed our lives. And I did that today, and um, if I'm being honest, I feel like I was talking at a million words per second, um, and I probably said a lot of things that weren't true. Well, hopefully not a lot, but I probably did mess up. I know I messed up, so if you're like, that's not right, it probably wasn't right. Um, But it was awesome, um, and I'm excited for you to get to listen to me share the best story ever with my awesome friends, Karen Chansey and Grant Gaines. Are you, he'll set a timer too. Okay. Okay. Ready? Okay. Karen, Grant, I'm excited to share with you the story of the Bible because it matters and it matters because it's real and, it tr- and it's true and it changes lives and it's changed my life. And we know that it's true um, because of what it says about itself and because of, what outside, because of what outside sources say about it. And what the Bible says about itself, first it claims to be from God more than 2,000 times. And Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed, meaning inspiration was given to the writers from God. So the writers were not just writing what they wanted to write, but they were writing God's word. And we know that it's true because we can look at unity in the Bible. It was written on three different continents and three languages, over 40 authors from different walks of life, 1,500 years, yet from Genesis to Revelation, it's one consistent story, and it's unified. There's, there's unity in its consistent story, and it's consistent because there's one problem, and that's sin. Um, and there's one solution, and that's our Savior. And we can look what the Bible said, what is said about the Bible outside um, using the acronym MAPS. If you look at manuscripts, there's 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, um, and they date within a few decades of the original. And these manuscripts can be used to reproduce Um, the New Testament with 99.9% accuracy, and that difference is because it was copied down by imperfect humans. Um, And if we compare this to uh, Homer's Iliad, there's only a few hundred manuscripts of that famous writing, um, and the closest to the original are thousands of years later. And so if we can't trust that the Bible is what it says it is, we shouldn't trust any ancient document. Archaeology, there's been more than 25,000 discoveries of things in the Bible, and not a single one contradicts what the Bible says. Um, They either confirm or even affirm the stories in the Bible. If you look at prophecies, when the Bible was originally written, there were over a thousand prophecies. 27% of the book was prophetical, and more than half of those have already been fulfilled to the smallest detail. There's also about 300 prophecies of our Savior in the Old Testament all of which are fulfilled. And so we can trust that what the Bible says is true, and we can trust what Jesus says about himself is true as well. Before we dive into the story, I want to briefly go over the structure. So the Bible is divided, or statistics. We know that those prophecies, um, science tells us that not even eight of those would be able to be fulfilled by a single man. And so there's just no way that Jesus isn't who he says he is. Um, And so the structure... Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Testament is before our Savior comes, but we see our Savior 
all throughout it, and I will be hinting at him as we go. Um, so there's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, Genesis to Revelation. So let's start where all good stories start, and that's at the beginning. The first verse, the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he spoke everything into existence. So we see his unique and mighty power on display from the beginning. And he created day and night and the clouds and the sky and the land and the sea and the plants and the trees and the sun and the moon and the stars and the animals and the birds and the fish. And he called it good. But then he created us and he called us very good. And he created this all in six days. And on the seventh he rested, not because he was tired, but because his perfect creation was complete. And we were created in his image and we were his greatest creation. Um, and he gave us authority and rule over all other creation. And he told us to, be, to multiply and be fruitful and fill the earth. Um, and Adam was the first man, um, and he was alone. And God saw that it was not good for him to be alone. Um, but he could find no helper for him out of his creation. And so Eve would be formed from Adam, and they would be together in perfect harmony, in perfect unity with God. Man's face and God's face were one and the same, but this would soon be separated when sin entered the world. And sin is anything against the character or commands of God. And in the garden, Adam was given only one command, and that was not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that he did, he would surely die. And Satan, in the form of a serpent, comes along. And he used to be one of God's highest angels, but he was prideful, and so God kicked him out of his place. And so now he opposes God. He comes along and he deceives Eve. And Eve believes the lie that if she eats from the tree, she will be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve sin, and immediately they know that they're separated from God. But God is not surprised. Um, he said, for in the day that you eat, not if you eat. And so he has a plan for creation. And in fact, as he's announcing judgment on Satan, he gives us this plan that one will come from Eve who will strike Satan on the head defeating death once and for all. So there will be a seed of women to come. But he can't let sin go unpunished. So um, Eve is told that childbearing will be severe and that man will work the ground, which is now cursed. Um, but he still provides for Adam and Eve. He clothes them and he puts a tr uh, sword of fire in front of this tree that if they would have eaten from, they would have stayed separated from God forever. So he guards the tree and he kicks them out of the garden and we see that he provides in ways that he shouldn't provide for us and he's gracious and merciful but from this point on humanity just continued to become increasingly wicked and God would regret that he made us and his plan was to send a flood that would wipe out mankind so that he could start over and he would save one man named Noah who found favor in God's eyes and God commanded Noah to build an ark and on the ark to take two of every kind of animal and, God, and Noah did all that God commanded um, so him, his family, and two of every animal would be on the ark for a little over a year. The rain would come for 40 days and 40 nights before they'd be saved from destruction. And again, God would bless his creation um, and tell them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But Noah's descendants become proud and they want to make a great name for themselves, a great city with a tower that would reach the heavens. And because they disobeyed God's commands to fill the earth, God was going to come down and he confused their languages, and scattered them across the earth. But God didn't forget the promise that he made in Genesis in the garden, and he chooses one man named Abraham from Ur, 
from the Chaldeans. And the Garden of Eden would have been, it's in between the Tigris and Euphrates. So Abraham was from Ur, and he's called from the comfort of his home to go to this land up here, the promised land. And in this land, God said he would get the land, and his name would be great, and a great nation would come from him with countless descendants, and his descendants from them there be timeless and everlasting impact. And this can be summarized as land, seed, and blessing. So Abraham was faithful, and he obeyed the Lord, um, but it was a crazy promise because he had no son from which a great nation could come. Um, we see that he still trusts the Lord, um, that he would provide, even though he's old and his wife is old, and she's not able to have children. And so they trust the Lord, but then one day they want to take things into their own hands. And so Sarah, his wife, gives him their servant Hagar, and a son named Ishmael is born. And Abraham loved Ishmael, but God said that there would be one that would come from Sarah. And so over a decade later, God's promises ring true, and a son named Isaac is born, and he is the son of the promise, and he is the physical seed of Abraham, that seed that was promised. Um, And so Isaac, he grows up, and then one day, God tells Abraham to go and take his son Isaac and sacrifice him. And so, because Abraham loves the Lord more than he loves his promises, Abraham is obedient, and him and Isaac walk up Mount Moriah. Isaac carries the wood, and on the way up, Isaac asks, where is the lamb? Which is the question of the entire Old Testament. He probably didn't know that's what he was asking, but he asks, and because Abraham believes in the Lord, he says that uh, the Lord would provide, and God does provide a ram in the thicket. But one is coming. One is coming, and God will provide in a greater way, a greater son, and a greater sacrifice. And so Isaac's life is spared, and he grows up, and he's going to marry Rebekah. And Rebekah has twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau is the older, and Jacob is the younger. Um, but we're told that the promise, or that the older will serve the younger. Um, and so Jacob deceives Isaac into receiving the blessing that Esau should have received. Um, And Jacob is a liar and he's deceitful, but God is still going to use him to fulfill his promise. And Jacob um, will grow up and he'll marry Rachel and Leah. Rachel is the one he loves, um, but Rachel is not able to have children. And so many children will be born to Jacob from Leah and Leah's handmaid and Rachel's handmaid. And then one day, Joseph will be born. And Joseph was Jacob's favorite of his 12 sons. Or Jacob was Joseph's favorite of his 12 sons. And Jacob's name would later be changed to Israel, and his 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. But Joseph was hated by his brothers, um, and so they want to kill him, but instead they sell him into slavery in Egypt. And in Egypt, Joseph would find favor in uh, Potiphar's eyes, and Potiphar was Pharaoh's assistant, and Pharaoh was the king of Egypt. So Joseph found favor until one day he's framed by Potiphar's wife and he's thrown into prison for three years, but the Lord's with him and in prison he's put in charge of the prisoners and he, in- he interprets dreams and one day he gets to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And the dream says, there will be seven years of abundance in the land followed by seven years of famine. And so Joseph is set second in command and the seven years go by of abundance and the famine is great in all the land. So people from all over are coming to Egypt to get food and that includes Joseph's brothers who were called the Israelites. And Joseph shows compassion towards his brothers, um, and they're reunited, and his brothers will stay and live 
in Egypt, and there's about 70 Israelites at the time, and they're treated well by Joseph and Pharaoh. Joseph will die, and Pharaoh will die, and the new Pharaoh is threatened by the amount of Israelites in his land because they've greatly multiplied. Um, And so they've multiplied, and Pharaoh wants them to be treated harshly and oppressed, but every time they're treated harshly, they continue to multiply, and there's millions of them in the land. And so one day he orders that all firstborn Israelites be killed. For the firstborn Israelite named Moses is going to be born, um, and his life is going to be spared. His mom puts him in a basket in the Nile River, and he will be raised by Pharaoh's daughter for 40 years as an Egyptian, before fleeing to a place called Midian, just east of the Red Sea, where he'll live for 40 years, when one day he's shepherding the flocks of his father-in-law, and God appears to him in a bush that's burning, but, or a bush that's on fire, but it's not burning. And God calls Moses to go to Egypt and save his people. But Moses doubts his own ability, and the Lord just simply reminds him of who God is. It's so easy for us to forget who he is. Um, and so Moses goes, he gets the courage, and he goes and tells Pharaoh to let my people go. But Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he says no. So ten plagues are going to come on Egypt. And God is going to show the Israelites that he's alive and active and worthy of worship and that the, and that the Egyptians' gods are nothing. And the tenth plague is the death of all firstborn Egyptians, their sons, daughters, the livestock, everything. And in order for the Israelite firstborns to be spared, they're, they're to kill an unblemished lamb and put the blood over their doorframe so that at night the angel of death will pass over. And the angel of death does pass over and they're spared. But there's a greater Passover lamb coming whose blood will be spilled on the cross, um, sparing us all and saving us from eternity and slavery. So the Israelites are delivered from Egypt and they will cross the Red Sea, which is miraculously parted by God. And they're going to go to a place called Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, Moses will receive the law. And the law was made up of the Ten Commandments, ordinances, which are just hundreds of other laws in the worship system, which included the priesthood, the tribe of Levi, um, and the offerings and feasts in the tabernacle. And God knew that his people wouldn't be able to keep the law, but he wanted them to be a nation set apart, and he wanted to reveal his holy character, and he wanted to dwell with them, which was the purpose of the tabernacle. But in the tabernacle, access to God was limited. Um, The tabernacle was separated by a veil, and on one side, In the holy place, priests would go and make sacrifices for sin. And on the other side, in the holy of holies, the high priest would go once a year to be in the presence of the Lord. But one is coming who will tear this veil when his flesh is torn on the cross. um, And he will usher us into God's presence. And there will no longer be limited access to God. After the Israelites receive the law, God calls them to set out on the promised land. And Moses is going to send 12 spies into the land. They'll spy it out for 40 days. And 10 of them will report back to Moses that they shouldn't go in. And they doubt the Lord and they lack trust in him, even though he just delivered them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And so this generation is not going to be allowed to enter the promised land. Instead, they'll wander in the wilderness for 40 years and then they will die. Moses will receive the, or uh, give the law again to the new generation at Moab, and then he will die at Mount Nebo. But there is a new Moses coming, and his name was Joshua. And Joshua is going to lead the Israelites into the promised land. 
Joshua's name can be translated to Yeshua, which means Yahweh and salvation. And the Jordan River means river of judgment. And so one is coming, who's a greater Joshua, who will deliver us from forever in judgment and death into an eternal promised land. And so they cross the Jordan River and they arrive at Jericho and they're going to walk around the city for seven days. And on the seventh day, the trumpets sound and the walls fall and God delivers them into the promised land that was promised to Abraham years ago. And they're to conquer it from south to north and they're to drive out all their enemies. But instead... They don't drive out all their enemies, and so when they settle the land, they're going to be living among enemies that don't know the Lord. And so the generation, as they grow and a new one comes in, they're going to forget the Lord, and they're going to start to look a lot like their enemies, and God is going to allow them to be enslaved by the enemies before he will raise up a judge. And judges were political and military leaders. And because the Israelites' disobedience, they will experience cycles of sin um, where for a time, they'll faithfully serve the Lord, and then they'll fall into sin and idolatry, and they'll be enslaved, and then they'll cry out. And then the Lord, because he's faithful, raises up another judge, but the people don't learn, and so these cycles just continue and continue. And three notable judges during this time were Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. But the greatest and most notable judge is coming who will rule and reign in righteousness forever, and there will no longer be cycles of sin. And this was the darkest period in Israel's history because for 400 years, everyone did what was right in their own eyes except Ruth and Samuel. And Ruth was not one of God's chosen people. She wasn't an Israelite, but she married married an Israelite who later died. And so she's widowed, and her life is hard, but she trusts the Lord and follows her mother-in-law, Naomi, to Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, she marries Boaz, who restores her just as one is coming who will restore and redeem us in full. And we see that Ruth is also in the line of the one to come. Samuel was the other one who was righteous, and he is going to be used by God to appoint two kings. God wants to be the Israelites' king, um, but the Israelites want a king like all the nations around them have. And Samuel is displeased at this request, um, but God says it's okay, and he just has him warn them of what this king would do to him. So he warns them, but they still want a king. And so the Lord is going to grant the request for a king, and Saul will become king. And Saul um, physically was a great candidate for king, but he was dishonest, and he lacked integrity, and he was prideful. And he would win some battles at the beginning of his reign, but eventually he would disqualify himself from being king by blatantly disobeying the Lord. And the Lord would regret that he made Saul king, um, and Saul would take his own life, And so Samuel would be sent to find God's chosen shepherd, David. And David was a man after God's own heart, but not because he was perfect, but because of the way he returned to the Lord in true repentance um, and was sorry for his sin. And David was a mighty warrior for the Lord, and he wanted to build him a house. Um, But God says, no, I have a better plan. One will come from you who will... Uh, have a throne and a house and a kingdom that has no end. And David would die, and his son Solomon would become king. And Solomon was wise and prosperous, but eventually he was pulled away by the things of this world, women and money and chariots. And so God becomes angry with Solomon, and his king, his kingship's going to come to an end, and his son Rehoboam becomes king. And Rehoboam is even worse. He's ruthless, 
and he taxes the people, and the people are going to rebel. And so the kingdom is going to split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel, and ten tribes will be in the north. During their existence, they have 19 kings, none of which are good. In the south, there will be two tribes. It's the nation of Judah. And during their existence, they have 20 kings, eight of which were kind of good. And because the north has no good kings, they're disobedient and they're wicked. And God, because he loves his people, is going to use prophets to speak to them and tell them that if they don't return to him, they will be uh, conquered. And the northern kingdom doesn't turn back to the Lord. And so Assyria is going to come and conquer Israel. And the northern kingdom will be scattered and they're never to return. Because the southern kingdom had eight good kings, they will last for 150 more years. Um, But in their disobedience, God is going to use Babylonia as his agent of judgment on them. And Babylon previously conquered Assyria and the northern kingdom. And so Babylon is going to conquer Judah in stages and send them into exile. And they'll be in exile for 70 years because they missed the land Sabbath. But really, they were just disobedient to the Lord. And so in exile, prophets will be speaking, urging them to stay strong in their faith, even though their circumstances are not good. And one of these prophets is Ezekiel, and he has a vision that the glory of the Lord leaves the temple and comes to Babylon, um, and he prophesies that there will be a new covenant where Israel will be restored and their sins will be forgiven in full, and God will be with his people. And there is one coming who will be the mediator of this new covenant. Daniel is also prophesying, and he prophesies that they will be taken over by the Medes and the Persians, and this happens. And King Cyrus is the king of Persia, and during this time, God is giving him a heart for God's people. And so when the 70 years are over, he allows um, all the people of Israel, the northern and the southern kingdom, to return to Jerusalem if they want to. But some will stay behind, and they will be protected by Queen Esther, who was an Israelite. For the ones that returned, Zerubbabel would lead the first wave of people, and he would rebuild the temple. Ezra was a priest, and he would lead the second wave of people, and he would revive the uh, spiritual, just spiritual revival, and teach them the word of God. And then Nehemiah would come, and he would rebuild the walls, and restoration would be complete. And so they're back in their land, and there's hope because even though they're about to enter a period of 400 years of silence, the prophets had been saying that one is coming, and Micah specifically said that one would come from Bethlehem who would rule over Israel, and so they're hopeful. And at this time, when they return, they're still ruled by Persia, and Persia treats them well and allows them to worship God. But Persia would soon be conquered by Greece, who would bring a common culture and language, and then after a time, Rome would gain power. Um, And King Herod of Rome was politically motivated, and out of politics would emerge Um, religious groups, one of these being the Pharisees who instilled the law of Moses, but after a time they considered um, the law more important than God. And so the Jews who were once hopeful now are lacking hope and faith, um, but one is coming who is going to make straight the ways for the Lord, and his name is John the Baptist, as Isaiah prophesied. Um, And John the Baptist is going to be the forerunner of our Savior, and he's going to prepare the way And not long after, an angel named Gabriel appears to a woman named Mary 
and Mary is told that she will have a son named Jesus. And Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And he would live for 30 years, just living life. And then he would appear to John the Baptist, his forerunner, and he would be baptized. Um, And then he would be tempted in the desert by Satan for 40 days before beginning his ministry. And during his ministry, he would have 12 disciples, his closest followers. And he would teach and preach with authority and perform miracles and proclaim the kingdom of God. But the Jews... um, aren't happy with him because they want the Jews wanted an earthly king who would save them from Roman oppression, not a heavenly king who would come and save them from the oppression of their sin. And the religious leaders want him executed because they're envious of his following and they hate that he claims to be the son of God. And so the son of God who came to save us is going to be crucified on the cross. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And Jesus, like Isaac, carried wood up Mount Moriah and submitted to the will of his Father and gave his life for us. And you see that he is the greatest Son and the greatest sacrifice. And like the blood put over the door frames of the Israelites in Egypt, um, his blood poured out on the cross and he saved us from eternity and slavery, and at 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, he is our Passover lamb, and he is the greatest Passover lamb. And on the cross, his flesh was torn, and when his flesh was torn, he tore the veil in the tabernacle, ushering us into the presence of God, giving us unlimited access to him, and he is the high priest. Um, And even the, one more, and he is the mediator of the new covenant. Um, Oh, he is inside of us. He dwells inside of us. And although Satan struck him on the heel when he died on the cross, Jesus had the final say when he rose from the grave, um, striking him on the head, defeating death once and for all, and he is the seed of woman that was promised. And he is the greatest Joshua because he delivers us from an eternity in death and judgment and allows us to be in an eternal promised land with him. And after his resurrection, he would appear to women near his tomb, to his disciples, and to more than 500 other people, and he would be with them for 40 days. And then he commanded his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they received the Holy Spirit, and told them that after they received the Holy Spirit to go and make disciples. And then he ascended to the right hand of his Father in heaven. In the Jerusalem, they wait, or the disciples, they wait in Jerusalem. And at an event called Pentecost, they receive the Holy Spirit, as well as many others receive the Holy Spirit. And people are saved this day, and the church is born. And because they are empowered by the Holy Spirit, they go and boldly proclaim the gospel, and many more are saved. But with growth came persecution by the religious leaders in the Roman government. And one of these people that was relentlessly, relentlessly persecuting the church was Saul. Um, And he was persecuting everyone that he could. But on a road from Jerusalem up to Damascus, he would encounter Jesus and his life would be changed forever. Um, His his name would be changed to Paul and he was going to be used for God's purposes to take the message to the Gentiles. And this is a huge deal because the Gentiles weren't considered heirs of the promise. But we know now when Jesus died on the cross, Ephesians 3, 6, that now they are heirs of the promise. And that includes... Us. And so just 
as boldly as Paul once persecuted the church, he's now going to go and proclaim the good news. And he's going to go on three missionary journeys. He will go to Galatia, then he will go to Greece, and then he will go to Asia Minor. And on these missionary journeys, he will preach the gospel that it's by grace they have been saved through faith and not of their works. And he would plant churches and he would encourage the people. Um, and then he would be imprisoned. And in prison, he would write letters to these churches and individuals, encouraging them to stay strong in their faith. And then he would later die for his faith in Rome. But this is not the end of the Gentiles hearing the gospel. Romans 11.25 tells us that there's a partial hardening of the Israelites' hearts until all the Gentiles that are, come, that are to come to God come. Um, and so uh, what... God began before Genesis. He will finish in Revelation. Jesus is coming back, and he, will, he is and will be the most righteous judge who rules and reigns forever. He will judge the wicked, and Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire, um, and he will be the conquering king that the Jews expected to come first, and he will sit on the throne of his father David, and his house and kingdom will have no end, and believers will get to be with him in this kingdom forever, and there will be no more pain, suffering, tears, or death. Um, and so we see that Jesus was the plan all along. He was present at creation. Through him all things were created, and in him all things hold together. He is the seed that was promised in the beginning. as Galatians 3.16 tells us. And we see that the Bible is a book about a faithful God and his plan to save an unfaithful people, but he allows us to be a part of it, and he allows us to be a spiritual seed, as Galatians 3.29 tells us. And we know from Romans 10.9 that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead, we will be saved. And he wants to give us hope, and he does give us hope for the future and confidence in today. And he wants to give us life, and life abundantly. And my favorite part about this story is his faithfulness to a people that constantly run from him. Um, I grew up in church, and I believed that Christ died for my sins, but the message I received as a kid was that then I was supposed to go and not sin. And I didn't understand that when I sinned, um, that God would be right there for me. Um, and he, I didn't understand his character and that he pursues me more than I even pursue him. And we know from Exodus 34, 6 and 7, that he's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. And he forgives sin, yet the guilty won't go unpunished. In Lamentations 3, that his compassions uh, never fail and his mercies are new every morning. And he wants good for those who hope in him, and he just wants my heart, and that's my favorite part of the story, is that we see just an unfaithful people, and that's us, but he is right there for us, um, and he's sovereign in his hands over my life, and he has a plan for me, and so now I get to be faithful, to walk in a manner of the calling, manner worthy of calling I've received in him, and share this good news with everyone. Wow. Well, that was a lot, but that was probably the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. And I'm not sure where I would have ever had a chance to learn the story of the Bible and how it all fits together to point us to the one who saves us and who allows us um, to be redeemed and live with him forever. 
in heaven. And he loves us, and he cares for us, and he's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And I wish I would have been able to better communicate what that means for me. But it means everything. Um, And now, as I tried to quote in the conclusion of my Bible overview, because of what Jesus has done, my life's no longer about me, but about him. And I get to walk in a manner worthy, worthy of the calling I've received in him. Paul just really gets me with his words. But we get to do that. We get to be faithful to show others Christ. And he's sovereign and his hand is over my life and your life. And he has a plan for us. And so now our life is just about sharing that message so i hope you enjoyed um i have not listened to this recording so if you listen to it before i re-listen to myself um if i don't sound excited that's just that's just not true because i was very excited and it was very fun and i wish that things would come across better and that excitement would be shown but i am excited because the bible matters and it matters because what it says is true and what it says is that God loves his people, and he sent his son to die on the cross for us so that we could have life and have it abundantly. And he has made us new.